The Sports Career Podcast, episode 288. What are the benefits of having an ICANN approach? Hello, Sports Achiever, and thank you, yes, you, listening to this podcast episode. I'm your host, Ed Bowers, and as always, my goal each week is to provide you a podcast special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career as a psychologist in sport. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests, and needs. Now, getting back to today's episode, this week's special guest is Josephine Perry, who's a chartered psychologist working with performance in sport through her consultancy business, which is called Performance in Mind. Also, she's an author of multiple high-performance books. So for that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Josephine as a podcast special guest on the show. And that's when today's episode, Josephine will share her sports career journey and explain to you the benefits of you having an ICANN approach in what you do in sports and in your day-to-day life. Josie, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please, you share your sports career journey to listeners. When did it all start? Oh, thank you. There's always been a little bit of sports, so I... I wasn't sporty sporty at school I was very much ballet drama tap jazz dance all of that side um and then did a little bit of sport at university uh, mainly rowing and sailing uh and then like lots of people I started running doing the 5k race for life kind of races with friends which led into oh if I can do a 5k maybe I can do a 10k and then it was like oh there's a marathon so I signed up for a marathon and then it was like oh let's try triathlon now the way many of us go down that route so you kind of start with a 5k and you end up with an Ironman triathlon and so I was very much in the sporty side until oh about maybe 2010 I think I went to work for Nuffield Health so I was in communications I went to be their communications director and that was brilliant because we ran gyms and hospitals but the real message was about the more you move the fitter and healthier you can be the less you need to be in our hospitals so there's a really nice kind of message as a communications person was to be spreading around the importance of um, sport and health and fitness um, and then I went over to Australia to do an Ironman and I'd been swimming in nice 20 meter pools in London they're all full of chlorine and nice stuff and spas alongside uh, and I stood on the beach in Frankston where the Melbourne Ironman takes place and the day before the waves had been absolutely fine it had been this beautiful Australian type beach and the day of the race the waves looked utterly terrifying and I've seen videos since and they still look utterly terrifying um, and I was like there's no way I can do that and the guy on the um, tannoy that was doing the announcements saw everyone was looking a bit off at these waves and said you guys can't control those waves you can only control how you feel about them and it was genuinely the first time I've gone oh yeah if I use my brain a bit more I might actually do better at sport and I just never thought about it I'd always thought of sport being about the body 
I'd never really thought in depth about how important the brain could be at influencing your body or your mindset or the way you train or the way you race. And it just got me into this real spiral of thinking about sport differently, starting to read. There weren't many books about it at the time, um, but starting to read a few. Um, and I had an opportunity to, to leave my job and do something different. So I went back to university to do a master's in psychology because I figured if you understand behavioral change, that's going to help you in communications just as much in sport. Um, but really enjoyed it. So went on to do a master's in sport and exercise psychology. And then discovered you have to do an extra three years of supervised practice to become a chartered sports psychologist. So I did all that as well. Um, and then I've been working in our world ever since. Wow. I've got to go back in time a bit just to fill in some gaps because I know you've written some books as well. We're going to be talking about one of your books on this episode. But just going back to your times in PR and like communications before you got into the world of psychology, like looking back now, how has that supported you like working in PR and comms in the world of like practice psychology? Like, I'm just curious of that because if people are listening, you've just proven that you can pivot in your own career, but you have to have that sort of spark, which for you was on the beach with that waves. Um, I'm just curious looking back, how has that supported you now in that world, which has supported you to this day? I think in two ways. So firstly, I was very conscious when I switched careers that I was 15, 16 years behind everybody else that I would be applying for jobs up against. I, I, I was late 30s and everybody else was kind of 22 coming straight out of university. And that really worried me. I was really panicking about kind of, I'm late to this. People won't give me a chance. You hear all these things about it's harder to get jobs as you get older. Um, actually, I think having all of that experience and much more confidence because I know how to brief a, a minister in a department. I know how to train a chief exec, how to do a select committee hearing and comments. You have so much more confidence to go in and just take what you see and work with it that actually that's been very very helpful and I think particularly working with children and teenagers parents really appreciate having somebody um, that's working with their children that's that's got that life experience and really gets all those different things so I think having a previous career has been quite helpful but also communication specifically is incredibly valuable when you're working in sport often I find the two most important relationships that athletes will have are with their parents and with their coaches. And that's going to flex at different ages. But if you're working a lot with teenagers, those will be the two really relevant people that they have within their support system. And if there aren't good communication systems, that's where most of the trouble tends to come from. So athletes that are assuming their parents have certain expectations of them or they see something that the coach does or says and they don't understand why they've said it or done it but they make an assumption about that and it's often a very negative assumption and that can cause all sorts of drama for them it can make them feel um, very unaccomplished it can make them panic about where they are in their sporting journey and so actually being able to train them to use good com communication skills to get what they need out of their coaches or their parents to be asking the right questions, to give them the confidence 
to ask the right questions. It's really important. And I remember when I was interviewing um, athletes for the I Can Teenage book, um, one of the athletes I interviewed was Rebecca Adlington. And she said, if there was, or I said, is there one piece of advice you would give to any teenagers? And her answer was, I know it's scary, but ask as many questions of your coach as you can. She was like, don't worry that they're going to think you're judging that they don't know things. And that's why you're asking. The more you ask, the more you understand about your sport and how you do well in it and understanding why they're asking you to do certain things. And when you understand that, you can do better at it. So those communication skills that I had to use with ministers and chief execs, they work brilliantly with coaches and parents and other people in your support system. So I think that's been a really valuable strand to be able to bring into psychology. You just said a great term, which I haven't heard before. You said having an effective communication system. Is that relating to what you've just said about asking effective questions? Would you mind just giving a little example? Yeah, so it's, I guess it's about having the tools to communicate well and an overarching positivity that it's okay to ask those questions. So I remember hearing... Um, some conversations in a club that I thought were fascinating around rowing and rowers will often have um, a weekly erg test often Wednesday morning they all hate it they're all kind of they, Thursday nights they struggle to sleep because they know Wednesday they've got this erg test and in some clubs that erg test will dictate where they sit in the boat or even which boat they sit in on a weekend race so it, it feels a lot bigger than it should do and so you feel like your, your value in the club is determined on that test and where you are in the boat or which boat you're in. And sometimes coaches won't make the boat choices based on the ERG test. So really specific example, someone had a good ERG test. They thought that meant they should be in the first boat. But actually, the coaches knew the river they were going to be on was a particularly rough river and they really needed some very strong rowers in the second boat just to keep it safe and so they might put some of those strong people with great erg results in the second boat those people feel they failed they've done something wrong they've upset the coaches they've been put in the second boat what's all that about and you can take that very personally the coaches actually mean it as a compliment we need your strength we need your ability and your skills to keep this boat and all the people in it safe but if you don't have that communication, the athletes are upset and the coaches have no idea why the athlete is sulking and feeling upset and feeling unmotivated. And it can be very simple things that if you ask the right questions, that you can then be on the same path. Similarly, athletes that feel like they're being overlooked for choices in teams. It's like, does the coach know that you really want to be in that team, that you're really focused on this? Do they know it's important to you? Or maybe they've overheard you talking to somebody about how important GCSEs are at the moment. And so they're giving you some space to focus on your GCSEs because they think that's most important to you. Whereas you really want to be in the first team and they might have picked you if they'd have known that. And you don't have to demand to put me in the first team. But if you have a conversation about, I'm really, really keen with my cricket to get into the first team what advice can you give me about the training and the practice and the extras I can do to make my way into the first team that's a much stronger conversation you get great advice they know you want to be there you're going to be in a much better place 
So the more you can have that openness and that honesty and some transparency, both sides benefit. But when we get scared and nervous and anxious, we don't communicate. Most of us retract inside ourselves and we won't have that conversation. And we want people to just notice us for being brilliant. And you can't always do that. Sometimes you need them to know what you want. I love that. Just to, this, I'm going deep on this one example. So they've done the ergo test and then they know they're in the second boat. In your opinion, where's, when's the best time to have that conversation? Because surely they'll be on you know, the weekend they're competing. So when's that moment to have that conversation that's best for the crew and for the individual as well? I guess I would say not as soon as you find out because you you'll be in a threat mode right then and you probably might be more aggressive or you won't say it the way that you want to when we're we're feeling emotional we don't tend to put our our thoughts across in the best way but I would say a couple of hours actually after you find out before the race because otherwise you're not going to be competing in the best place in the race you're going to have that negativity towards it why am I doing this this isn't right you can't give it your best but if you have the conversation after you found out before you race you can say to your coach okay, I see I'm in the second boat. Is there a reason? Is there anything I can do to make that boat as brilliant as possible? What are you looking for from me in that boat? What was your reasoning that I can live up to? Then you find out the real reason, so you're feeling good. But you can also help make the boat be brilliant because you know it's about your strength or it's no, you know it's about your leadership in the boat to keep it safe. So don't let things fester. Don't run straight in shouting at them, but also don't retract back. We have those different threat responses. A few people might go in really aggressively. But actually, I find most athletes, particularly the ones I work with, about 80% are probably the, the shutdown, the be quieter when you're feeling under threat mode. And that means you don't communicate. So you don't find out the reality of something. So again, stating the obvious, this is why feedback's crucial not just from a performance standpoint, but also like progress as well, like with regards to the goals. And I'm amazed the amount of athletes I work with that I will say, well, what goals have you set with your coach? And they're like, oh, I just, I just go to where they tell me to go to or do the competitions. And it's like, if you can't see why you're doing the sessions you're doing, it's hard to know what you should be putting into them where the effort should go or where the focus should go um we know until you're about 15 16 you can only focus or give proper attention for about two and a half times your age so if you're 10 you've probably got about 20 to 25 minutes of effort and attention you can really give to something in your sport and you're probably playing for an hour an hour and a half at training session so if your coach has made it really clear the benefit of this session is this. See, if you're an astute athlete, that's what you're going to give your real attention to because you can't focus for that whole time. And that's why you tend to see athletes switch off quite soon and towards the end of sessions with younger kids, it gets a bit haywire. Um, and that's why in my practice for younger athletes, I only do 30-minute sessions because 60 minutes with a 12-year-old doesn't... They've switched off by the end. They're yawning. They're, I've had people under a table or kind of fidgeting really badly. And that's perfectly natural. That's their development process. So trying to force them into an adult 
kind of sports psychology environment doesn't really work for them. When I work with teams, I don't sit them down for 90, 60 minutes in front of me. They're up and down and they're doing things and we'll have competitions within it that will make the same points, but in a way that works much better for kids that don't have that same focus that adults might. I know we touched on it just before we, we went live, but how important is language? Because that's what we will talk about I, your I Can book, because one thing I loved about reading it, it was the language was simple to learn, but you're embedding those sort of psychological approaches. But just relating to your point about attention with certain age groups, uh, which as you mentioned a bit in a lot more detail of different ages, how important is it to have the right language? It's really, really important. And I'm discovering this from a personal perspective because I've got a five-year-old and she is at the stage at the moment where she wants to know the definition of every word that she doesn't understand, which from an educational perspective is brilliant. From a mum perspective, it's really hard because you get so stuck in the words that you use. You don't think about the one this morning was including. And it's such a simple word. I use it all the time. She never questioned it before. But this morning she was like, what's including me? And you really have to pull back into, gosh, what does it mean? And then I noticed I used another complicated word when I described it. And you're constantly pulling it back. So I would not like to be a reception school teacher because, goodness, they must have to think all the time about their language. Um, but I think it's really, really important because if somebody doesn't understand you, particularly if they're quiet, they won't tell you they don't understand. They'll just not take it in and then you've completely wasted that session with them. So I love the athletes that go, yeah, what's that actually me? Or can you, can you ask that again differently? That's brilliant for me because it, it forces you to, to be much better um, with your language. Um, and when I wrote I Can, I got five or six young athletes to read it for me. Um, and I sent them off different chapters, and I think they were ages 11 upwards. And they were brilliant because they came back with circles on, I didn't understand this. So it's like, fabulous, I'll rewrite it. Um, and one bit in particular, they came back and said, can we have some bullet points of how to, or something we can give to our parents that explains how we feel about things. And that became an extra activity in the book. So I'd say for practitioners working, children it's loads of checking in um how did you translate that what does that mean is this what you meant by that um and it was something rebecca mentioned in her interview of that really pull out what do you want from me and me feeding back to you is this what you meant because and, and that's techniques that are taught in teaching all of the time um, but the more you can do that and the more coaches can do that of really in that right language that kids understand. And it's not really an age thing because that development goes at very different levels, but it's really getting to understand the person in front of you um, and how much they get. You just triggered another thing. We've talked about language, but how important from a teenager standpoint about different like learning styles? Like, for example, I was reading that book going back in time when I was 13 to sort of 18 when I was playing tennis and I, that time was probably the biggest challenge because I was dyslexic and it was hard to I you know for me sport was a tool to to get other skill sets but reading your book 
what I loved were your activities because I learned I actually practically like my favorite one is like planning your day and using it like a pie like I'm big into like visual learning so how important is that that instead of coaching assuming just using language you said it earlier with working with teams you can practically share the lessons in an exercise too so I ho- I'd hope you don't mind me digging uh, unpeeling this layer of an onion because I think it's vital that it's not just language it's learning styles on the individual or team if that makes sense so I try to be as I guess applied as possible um I have I created a, a, a toolkit toolbox it's one box it's got 13 different activities in it that you can give to people usually as presents um, but we've done it with whole teams where particularly during lockdown um, the team would buy everybody in the team a box so that they could do those things they could work on a postcard which would give them their performance playlist or confidence boosting cards or analysis cards that you do after and I send those out things like that to all my athletes Um, other things I've had younger athletes that are so in they're in a threat mode when they're they're brought into a clinic to see someone they've never met to fix something that feels really scary to them they can't talk so I've literally had sessions with athletes who haven't spoken and you as a therapist that's really daunting because all you want to do is to be able to engage and find something to help bring them out of themselves but you can see they're absolutely terrified of this environment they're in um, so I have cards, mood cards, which again, my daughter loves. If she's in a bad mood in the morning, there's no getting through to her, but you can say, do you want to get the cards out? And she'll run and get them and we spread them all out over the floor and she can point to how she feels. And that enables a much better conversation. Um, I've actually got a whole page on my website of different tools and techniques you can use for younger ones when they're struggling with anxiety or controlling their emotions, because there are some brilliant books. Um, We have a worry monster and worry has a zippy mouth and you can write down, or they draw a picture of what they're worried about, or you can write it down for them and you put it in worry's mouth and it's gone the next morning. I hope she never finds my stash because I've kept (laughs) them all, they're so cute. Um, But all of those things, the more physical you can make it, it works for all of us. And they tend to be, when I chat to to athletes later on, they tend to be the things that they remember. And things like mood cards are brilliant because um, that physical element of picking them up and using them is helpful. In my adult work, I do a lot of work around values and what values matter to you and how do we behave more values-driven in our sport so that it matters more to us in a way that matters to us. And we have values cards too. And actually I can give someone a sheet of paper that's got a hundred values on it and it works, but I'd much prefer to be sitting on the floor in a clinic with them putting out their values into not like me, a bit like me, definitely like me and filtering them down until you've got those three cards that are like, yeah, this is me. That's more powerful. And that's what they remember. Much more than looking at a sheet of paper where they've crossed lots of stuff off. Absolutely. And you just triggered something else. When you said you're on that beach, you said you learned that lesson that sport isn't about the physical, it's the mindset. But related to that exercise, do you think physical exercise triggers the mood with the feelings, then influences the mindset of improving our performance? We know that. So one of my other books, The Psychology of Exercise, 
And I looked at that per age group. So we had kind of children, teens, adults, retirees with a health issue. And, and all of that was a vast amount of time pulling together the evidence for why exercise is so beneficial for us. And so obviously we know the physical benefits very, very clearly, but this was looking at the mental health benefits and specifically the cognitive benefits. And that was really strong, particularly for children and teens. The cognitive benefits of exercise mean we learn better, we control our emotions better, we're more creative, we're calmer. Um, and those were fascinating and looking at all the studies they've done on when they almost intersperse bits of exercise in a school day, how people remember things better afterwards. And we all know as adults, if you're having a bad day and you've had a fight with someone on the phone and everything feels like it's going wrong, many of us will have our sport as a coping mechanism. Um, unless I'm injured, I've rarely come back from a run feeling worse. You come back from a run with much more perspective. We know when we're exercising, there's different theories about this, but one of them is that actually that extra blood going around our brain goes to the prefrontal cortex. It really helps us think through things. It helps us see more perspective. We know it improves our memory. So we know that um, scientists originally thought that when your neurons start to die, that's it. And that's why we start to lose our memory in older age. And they found that the one thing that creates new neurons is exercise and it creates new neurons around the hippocampus, which is where our memory and our learning and our knowledge is all kept. Um, so they all tie in so well together. It's, there's a, a podcast a friend runs that's called 80% Mental, because there's that idea that 80% of sport is actually psychological. I have got no idea how true that is. And I think there might be some, it's going to be different for each of us because we all bring our own journey and genes and everything else to the table. And I think there's a little bit of difference in sports as well. I think some sports, certainly before I became a sports psychologist, I was so flippant about golf. I used to talk about it. like, Oh, it's just a long walk on a sunny day, not a sport. Oh my goodness. Now I've worked with golfers. It's a sport I would hate to do because they've got four hours out there to let their brains go crazy of thinking through all the things that could go wrong and the judgments that could come and the, the fears that come with different things. So to me, after really understanding what golfers are going through, I would see it as probably an incredibly difficult sport mentally. Um, so it is really interesting how learning these elements change your perspective. Absolutely. And I really do hope the listeners are enjoying this conversation. Now, getting to today's podcast topic then, like and we've you've touched on it already, but what are the benefits of having an ICANN approach, not just in sport, but also in our day to day lives? Because a lot of you saying is transparent. You know, you can it's applicable in other areas, like you mentioned with your daughter this morning with defining words and language. Um, so I'm just curious of the real benefits of an ICANN approach to what we do. I guess the two biggest issues that people come to see me with, and I don't know if that's because that's what my reputation has become or because those are the biggest issues in sport when you're struggling a little bit, are emotional control and performance anxiety. Those are the two. And I've literally launched today a whole new program on performance anxiety because with a whole process, 
and a whole system in place because that's probably 80% of the work that I do because it's not only is it so difficult to handle as an athlete but it also feels like it's got a lot worse since the pandemic where our levels of being triggered about anxiety used to be it feels like everything that's happened over the last two years has made it easier to trigger happens a lot more and I think when you can really understand why your brain is behaving in the way it is then it's easier to cope with things whereas if it just feels like your brain is out to sabotage you and mess you over it's it's really hard to know what to do and you just feel more and more frustrated and it's not only we have it at all age ranges but particularly for juniors if you've got parents that don't understand it either often the things that parents will say to juniors to try to calm people down make things worse they don't mean to in the slightest they're trying to do their very best but saying something like oh you'll be fine you always win this a parent's just trying to give their child confidence what a child hears is you need to win this because otherwise you failed and so I find anything that helps you understand why you might be feeling anxiety or stress beforehand is really important and anything particularly in certain sports why you might lose emotional control in that sport is really important particularly I work a lot in things like tennis it all ties in together but things like especially junior tennis players one of the biggest values that they often have is fairness and particularly as children anyway but there is a real sense that things should be fair and then you play a tennis match where there's no umpire and the other person isn't fair and they might do some dodgy line calls, maybe on purpose, maybe they just can't see well enough. But instead of having a really well-developed prefrontal cortex that can rationalise, well, they might be cheating, I'm just going to play my best. When something like fairness that's a value kicks in, that really triggers our threat system. And so instead of thinking I'm going to play better now to prove a point, you think that's really unfair this is outrageous your threat system triggers your physiology changes you kind of you've got that feeling of heat and redness and temper going up through your whole body at that point there is no way you can play proper tennis you fall apart your opponent wins you're seriously frustrated with yourself you've lobbed your tennis racket across the court it's not been a good match so if we can really a lot of it's self-awareness if we can help athletes of all ages realize how their brain might behave, what's likely to trigger certain ways of thinking and ways to soothe things if it starts to kick off, life is a lot easier and they enjoy their sport a lot more. And so the book's really designed, it covers nine different chapters of different elements. Um, but those two, I think everything really feeds into those. If we can calm our anxiety beforehand, and boost our confidence so we can use our skills and our strengths really well and if we can learn to control our emotions mid competitions that actually makes the whole process so much more enjoyable just going back to that tennis example because i'm smart smiling because i played tennis from the age of seven till 22 and when i say competitive it was always like well certainly from certainly from 10 to 18 i used to do match plays my goodness, I used to beat myself up on some of the things. Didn't throw my racket, God, I would know about it if I didn't. Never did that. But 
just on the emotional control when you do have that line call for some reason it was hard everybody says oh next point but it is next point up in your brain because it's that it's more like you really you only realize it probably the next next set where you've processed it all so if we could touch on that emotional control if you wouldn't mind like what are the triggers to snap out of it like the one thing i did you learn was i had elastic band i used to snap it and then it was like so is it like a fusing a physical trigger because that did work for me near the end i'm like why didn't i do this when i was 12 because it snaps snaps you out that mental state so i'm just curious relating to that example of the emotional control how to control it when really you're not in control because the other person made that call that makes sense so some of it is the work you do beforehand i find tennis particularly fascinating because it's so focused on rankings and scores um and you're literally opposite your opponent in a way that actually in most sports you're not so in in football or rugby you're all over the place you're mixing together in running they might be to the side or they might be in front you're not looking at them and tennis maybe like fencing boxing and boxing you're literally in front of them it feels more combative and I find a lot with tennis players they don't mind at all they're far less anxious if they're playing someone that's ranked better than them because you either lose to that person and it was expected or you win and it's amazing so it's kind of win-win but if you're playing someone that's considered worse the word I hear a lot is should I should be able to beat them I should be able to win it's a really dangerous word listen out for it if you're a practitioner because you you hear you know start to notice should a lot um and so if you're playing someone who's ranked worse than you you should be able to beat them so if you don't you've failed and if you beat them well you were supposed to so it's no great win so you're going into that game in a certain mindset already it's very hard to go into it and i will sometimes ask athletes please don't even look at the start sheet please don't even look at who you're playing but but sometimes parents are really keen for them to do that and sometimes they can't help it and so if they are going to look at it and you're at a high enough level, it's like, don't go back and look at their results. That won't help you. But see if you can find any YouTube videos, say, of them playing or um, understand the way they play. Because at least then you can adapt the way you play and it's been of value to find out about them. But if ideally, it doesn't matter. You're playing the person in front of you on the day. It shouldn't matter. Um, how well scored they are you've got no idea what's been going on in their life today they might be in the middle of their exams they might be going through a divorce they might have all of this other stuff going on that's going to influence them and if you step on there having detailed researched all their previous scores and results you're self-sabotaging before you've even started so we want you going on there in the right place anyway and then when you're on there it's about just as you say something sometimes we just do a hand pinch or pinching a girls have it easier we usually have hair bands around our wrists that you can ping I always have one um other things I do with athletes that are in book things like colorful breathing so and tennis is good for that you've got time for it running you can't or cycling you can't stop and start doing your breathing exercises tennis you get time um so colorful breathing is really nice where you pick your two favorite colors and you breathe in the first color through your nose for four counts, you hold, and you breathe out the second color through your mouth for six counts. 
And so the pattern of breathing slows everything down in your body. And the focus on the colors gives your brain a bit of a break from focusing on the cheating so-and-so that you're playing right then and there. Um, and because the breathing slows everything down, it stops telling the threat system there is something wrong. And so the whole thing starts to slow down and you can get back into it. Other things are nice are things like, I call it coach on a shoulder, but um, in sports psychology, we call it an instructional self-talk. But it's, um, I make this fun with athletes, but imagining that your coach is in Alice in Wonderland and they've stumbled across that little piece, that little vial of juice that says drink me and they drink it and it makes them so small they can sit on your shoulder whilst you're playing tennis or your sport and feed in little messages occasionally. And it amazes me, every athlete can think very quickly, what is the thing my coach would remind me to do? And it's usually fairly technical, but it's coaches have said that same thing so many times to them. They know what it is. They just forget about it in the moment. So actually, if you've got some way of remembering that in the moment, it helps you. So for me as a runner, head up. As soon as my head goes up in a run, my shoulders go back, chest goes forward, whole body rises, feet lift higher. And I know as soon as I say it to myself, I pick up the speed. You can't help it when you've got better technique. And athletes always seem to know their thing. And it's a really good way. So some people might write it on their hand. We've seen lots of tennis players that have it written all over their water bottles. Um, I think we've seen photos of Andy Murray in the past with sheets of paper with his kind of things on. But little things like that can be very powerful to click you into your own mastery mindset. Not what do I need to do to beat that person? What do I need to do to play at my best? For me, it was feet first in position on the court. So yeah. I can connect exactly what you're saying. And really with the breathing technique, what I loved about that, it also reduces that performance anxiety as well. I love that. That's in between games. That's really cool. Wow, wow, wow. What a conversation. I just want to touch in now. You've talked about your book already, but just for listeners to hear more, like, could you just share what the book full title is and what inspired you to write a book about it like I, I know you've done books with regards to physical activity which you mentioned and pillars of success in sport but why teenagers specifically I'm really curious on that point um, so it's called I can the teenage athlete's guide to mental fitness and to be very honest my publisher came to me and said I think this is a good read. you need something um, so that kind of set off the thoughts and I was a bit like teenagers are really hard to write for I'm like, at the time, I was, what, 43-year-old mum of a three-year-old. I'm not sure I'm in their world. But actually, most work in sports psychology is with teenagers. It's rare people think about that in advance. Um, and I do two free sessions a week with trainees or students who want to become sports psychs to kind of give them the reality of how it is, how they might get into sports psychology what the process is and everything and it's something that often they feel very surprised about and we have this image I guess I'm going to be a sports psychologist I'm going to go and work with Man U and all their players okay there's probably three or four jobs doing that at Man U there's probably I guess maybe 100 150 roles in the country that do pure full-time sports psychology in an employed role 
everybody else is working freelance, doing contracts, running their own small businesses, doing other things as well. It's quite rare that someone is a full-time sports psych. Lots of people are doing other things alongside it. Um, and so most of the work, if you're working on your own, is with teenagers. And even in employed roles, you're often working in academies, teaching those teens how to, to build up to that elite level. So actually, there is a huge amount of need for a book that specifically looks at teens, what they're going through, and some of their worlds are very different than our worlds. As I grew up, I didn't, I got my first phone at 16 and it was a Nokia that I could play snake on if I was lucky. And I could have 10 text messages on there before they filled up and I have to empty it. So I didn't have social media and the parents of the teenagers didn't have social media when we were growing up. So there is a little bit in there about kind of how do you handle that? Because we could compare ourselves when we were doing sport growing up, but you'd only compare yourself with the team around you. Now, if you're on the power of 10 in athletics or you're trying to get into an academy for football or rugby, you've got social media. You can compare yourself with every other kid in the world that wants to do the same thing. That's really, really hard. We're expecting them to cope with a huge amount of pressure and comparison that we never had. And so the more you can help that group, I feel the better. And I love working with the teams I have. They surprise me every time. Like we watch the news and you see like teenagers have done stabbings and this, and this is all going awful. And I come out of every session or workshop with teams utterly enthused because most of them are absolutely amazing. And they come up with brilliant stuff and they've really thought about things and they they really get it. It's really delightful to work with them in the ways that they they think um, and the depth that they go into. I can hear your enthusiasm already through your tone of your voice, but out of interest through writing the book, what did you learn? Because you've interviewed some amazing people in like Charlie Hodgson, he's talked about Rebecca Addington, Dame Sarah Story, who I actually saw at 2012 at the Paralympics. So like, may I ask what you like got from the experience of writing this book, like reflecting right now? I think the biggest thing is the transparency that those elite medal-winning athletes that we all look up to have exactly the same issues that we do. It's so easy to look up on them on their pedestals and go, oh, they've got it really easy. Life's just worked for them. Um, they've never had to deal with this stuff. I love Charlie Hodgson. I've loved watching him over the years, right? And then to hear him talking about, he, every time he went to Twickenham and he saw the, they always ate the same food. He talked about kind of pasta, tomato sauce and cheese before a match. And the thought of that food makes him feel a bit nauseous now because it brings back those feelings. And the fact he would sit in the changing room not wanting to go out and play because he was so anxious. How, learning that and then being able to share those stories with other athletes normalizes that there's nothing wrong with you I once had a really young athlete say I said oh why why have you come to see me and they said something around my dad says I need to be fixed my brain's broken I was like your brain isn't broken your brain's working on overdrive we need to soothe it not broken at all it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do but when you can share that other athletes that they look up to go through exactly the same issues and they've had to really learn to overcome them 
that really helps with that feeling of I'm not alone. And so often it's about wanting to feel like we're not alone and other people get it. And there's nothing wrong with us for the way we're feeling. And that can be with mental health issues, that can be the real tough element of feeling like there's something wrong with us and that we're broken. And we're not, it's just things are firing slightly differently in different ways and being triggered by some of those environmental aspects that we might have going on in our life. And if you can look up and see that the Rebecca Adlington's of this world or the Charlie Hodgson's or the Dame Sarah story, we've lost count of how many gold medals Sarah has, but there's there's many, many. Um, And her perspective, the thing I love about her is I cycled with her many years ago out in Lanzarote on a training camp. And we chatted and she said, I don't always like winning. And I was like, yeah, yeah, easy for you to say that. I've never won anything. You win everything. What were your medals and your titles? You're a dame. Um, And she's like, yeah, but when you win, you can't learn. And I'm not here to win everything. I'm here to be the best cyclist I can possibly be. And if I win stuff, there's no one to learn from. And I want to be the best. And that comes across a lot of the time when you talk to her. Um, and she's in her early 40s now. So she's always getting the, when are you retiring kind of questions? And she's like, when I stop improving. But my goal is to always improve and see what's possible. And that mindset, I utterly adore because that takes away comparison. It doesn't matter how you do compare to others. It matters how you do compare to you. It stops you focusing on, often call it shiny things. You scroll through Twitter and you see what everybody else is doing. Oh, I should be doing that too. It will take you off where you're supposed to be. If you've got a coach and you trust them, suddenly finding random things or tape that you should be putting on you or massage guns or all these, this certain training session is going to take you away from that process that's been very carefully thought out. So, and the, the whole, I should be beating people, I should be winning. That causes us the anxiety, that causes us the lack of emotional control. Whereas if we focus on mastery and process and being brilliant and measuring metrics that matter to us and not just metrics that are easy to measure against everybody else, we will do so much better. Wow. Thank you so much, Shreya. I do have one follow up question because it is mentioned in the book. And by the way, Josie shared quite a lot of the book within our conversation, by the way. But one thing I want to touch on in that story, how important is that self monitoring ourselves as a tool like you say, not to focus on the winning, but focus on like our our own self-development of being successful. But I assume the tool is monitoring those metrics. Like what, yes. what, where's that first step for that teenager or even adults to apply, if that makes sense? So the very first technique in the book is keeping a training diary and not an online training diary because you can't put the same amount of detail in there and you can't put the same amount of honesty actually if your coach is necessarily reading through it in the way you might want to so I think it's vital you have a training diary literally mine is kept by my bed use it every day um, and really think about the questions you ask yourself in there so for me as a runner it'll be how far did I run today what pace did I go how did I feel did I do what my coach had asked me to do but then it's did I notice any unhelpful thoughts sneaking in what was I proudest of in that run what did I enjoy is this what we call a gold medal session one of those sessions that when I've got a race I can look back and go oh that session was give was really good it gives me confidence 
And then you can have other things that matter. So I'm asthmatic. So every day I take my peak flow and I write it in there because it means I can keep on top of my health, but it also means if it starts to drop, I can get a check-in for the doctor. Um, females might want to put in their menstrual cycle because there's going to be certain days of the month that they can't do the same exercises in the same way um, and that might hold them back. And if you have a really bad session and you're beating yourself up that it's all going horribly wrong and your mind starts to spiral and then two days later you get your period and you're like, ah, that makes sense. It's so much better if you track it, you don't have that spiral. Um, so there's lots of different things you can put in there for you, the metrics that are important for you and your health. Some people will put sleep in there. Um, really helpful. I've got so many of my teenagers right now are doing GCSEs and A-levels. And I think some of them have up to like 25 exams that they're taking over this period. So I would expect their training and their racing or their comp competitions are not going to be particularly good over the next two months. But we need to be able to kind of track that. And um, a friend of mine in the US works for one of an amazing kind of finishing school for athletes over there. And he always says, success leaves clues. And a really good training diary means you can track what's helping you. A good example of that was Mo Farah um, did a documentary in I think 2016 before Rio Olympics. And he said in it, it's so cheesy, um, I need to know how the best athlete in the world trains. So I read my training diary for 2012 and you watch it and raise your eyebrows a bit and you're like he's spot on. He got gold in both of his events. Go back, see what you did, what worked. You don't need to start from scratch. You've got the best advice in the world for what worked last time. Let's see, you might need to adapt a bit, but why not go back to that? And similarly, if you've got an injury, it's really hard to figure out how you got the injury. But if you've got a training diary, where you've actually written, oh, I've had a niggle in my knee for the last three weeks. Ah, maybe I should have checked out that niggle earlier. And actually it came from having a dodgy ankle. So I've got loads of great information now to give to the physio so that we can get on top of it quicker and I can get back to my sport. So if, if there's just one thing you do as an athlete, I would say keep training diary. I think all of us should have diaries. I've got a journal as well. I sort of go into the gratitude side of things, get my mindset in check. And actually going back to that Mo Farah, example that the best piece of advice are the most simplest ones to apply wow what a lovely conversation and out of interest then Josie like what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now oh the the athletes it's such a privilege that every day I get to sit and talk about sport with athletes and the emails you get or the the phone calls when an athlete has the really joyous ones are not just when they've done well but they've done well because they applied the techniques that we worked on and they're almost prouder of the work that they've done psychologically than the, the number on a sheet of whatever result they got and that bit is and it's not just sport it can be the exercise side too so if somebody's managed to get back into exercise and they've they've run or walked their first 5k but the joy that you hear in athletes' voices when they've achieved that and you know you've got to help them a little bit on their journey. They did all the hard work. We just teach some techniques and ask some questions. But being on that journey with athletes is, is amazing. It's that fulfilment. Like anything with teaching, you get that reward. My goodness, 
As always, Josie, I always like to finish with an inspirational question. You provided bags of guidance, activities, relationships to your book. But out of interest, like what one activity from your book would you give to the listener with regards to improving that I can approach? Like which is that one that they can put in straight after listening to this podcast? My favourite is a confidence jar. So you literally get a jar, be a jam jar, 26 pieces of paper. We have five achievements, five strengths, five times you've overcome a setback, five times you've done something that felt really difficult to start with, five nice things other people that you care about have said about you, and the hardest one that all my British athletes roll their eyes at, one thing you love about yourself. And you put them all in a jar, and it's like a spare brain. Because our brains are designed to help us survive. They're designed to remember the negatives so that we don't do stupid things twice and we keep ourselves safe. They're not designed to make you a brilliant athlete or to remember how amazing you are. So sometimes we need kind of a spare brain that we can use for that. And now I give my athletes actually really light plastic tubes and we put all their messages in there because it means it can go in their kit bag and they can take it around the world. And I get photos of the little jars on bedside tables in hotels from different competitions and it means you've got something that if you're not feeling brilliant if you're feeling a bit like I can't you can open up that jar and read all the reasons why you can so if there's one thing it doesn't take long but it's it stays with you you can add to it and it's just such a nice way to feel good about yourself I've got to give that a go I've read all the activities but that the one I did see because I could visualize all those little strips of paper yeah. when I was reading the book. So I'll give that a go and actually I'll do a tweet on it so you can visually see it. Oh, but that'd be brilliant. Yes. All the, all the listeners listening in, I'd love to like, I want you to put this into action. So let me know, Ed Bowers 101, and we can get some bit of a fun engagement. But look, Josie, how can people interact with you online? Where's the best place to go? Uh, so I spend far too much of my life on Twitter. Um, so I'm Josephine Perry on Twitter. Um, but I've got a website called performanceinmind.co.uk. Um, there's lots of stuff on there. So there's a link to all my books, but there's also a section called Performance Zone. Um, and on there, um, it's 10 different sections about different elements of performance. It's a section of brilliant books that help you be a better athlete. There's sections on confidence or setbacks um, or how to become a sports psychologist. And there's loads of tools and activities in each section. That is great to all the listeners listening in. All those links will be on my blog with regards to this podcast. Josie, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. Wow. My goodness, I enjoy podcasts like this and so grateful to have Josie as a podcast special guest on the show. I really do hope you enjoyed it. And most importantly, I hope you've got a better understanding of having an I can approach, like relating to Josie's book, which I highly recommend. Uh, We discussed it in so much detail with regards to how it'll benefit teenagers, but it will also benefit you. And let me quickly explain what, what I like about Josie is she can explain in the book from a written format the simplicities of like psychological approaches of how we deal with things like let's say the emotional control and she simplifies it in the book which you can apply and the reason I say that is sometimes in the world of psychology and mindset and academia some of the way we learn can be very complicated because of the different models the different cycles well this book is like a, a real 
guide in how to put things into practice. So that's number one that you should do after taking action after this. Also, with regards to Josie's sports career journey, I just found fascinating. Like, what I enjoyed the most is the pivot when she was working in PR and comms and she pivoted into psychology, now working with athletes as a practitioner. It just shows that we can pivot. There's sort of no rule of thumb when, but there is with regards to you as an individual that it is possible, despite what age you are. And I think that's really important to me highlight from a career development that over time, our interest chains, our passion changes, and it's just important that it can be possible. But finally, what I really enjoyed the most is from a coaching standpoint, that if you are a coach, it doesn't matter what level, but particularly if you're starting out, I hope you just got a better understanding on certain aspects such as language, attention, when working with children at different age groups. Because if you can understand this with regards to your coaching plan and how you show up as a coach, the more prepared you'll be, but the more engaging your athletes will be during those sessions. And it's going to be a better experience for both of you, you know. So I think that's really important from that's if it's an individual athlete or if you're working with a team. But finally, with regards to your sports career development, I hope you do that confidence exercise jar. I'm going to be doing it. So make sure you do it and let me know at Ed Bowers 101. And I can't wait for you to put it in practice. So when you have, you know, a down day, when your mood is down, you can use that confidence jar and put it into practice with regards to your sports career development. Try the exercise now, put it into practice and do it. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Josie said, focus on the right language with the people you work with, because as a result, they'll understand you and you will understand them when working with them.